Good evening. Hurricane Ian threatens Florida with massive rain and storm surge as millions prepare to evacuate. The Oath Keepers sedition trial begins. A tent city for unhoused migrants at Orchard Beach and a nasty campaign ad in New York. Memories of Willie Horton. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Tuesday, September 27th, 2022. Hurricane Ian is closing in on Florida's Gulf Coast at this hour. Residents boarded up homes, packed up their vehicles, and headed for higher ground. Ian slammed into Cuba, leaving the entire country without power, swamping villages and forcing mass evacuations. In Florida, more than 2.5 million people are under evacuation orders. Governor Ron DeSantis gave this update at 11 p.m. Tuesday. The most recent update by the National Hurricane Center for the track of Ian uh, places landfall at the juncture of Charlotte and Lee counties. And so people in Southwest Florida, uh, this is uh, going to likely make landfall as a category four hurricane. Uh, There will be uh, catastrophic flooding and life-threatening storm surge on the Gulf Coast region. And of course, the highest risk will be in that Southwest Florida region from Naples uh, up to Sarasota. There's also potential for flash flooding and river flooding uh, with 10 to 20 inches uh, inches across central and northeast Florida. Uh, If you are in an evacuation zone, particularly in those southwest Florida counties, uh, you know, your time to evacuate is coming to an end. Uh, You need to evacuate now. Uh, You're going to start feeling major impacts of this storm uh, relatively soon. Uh, We anticipate landfall sometime uh, tomorrow afternoon into tomorrow evening. Uh, But of course, if it even if it arrives on land uh, tomorrow evening, you're going to feel those effects uh, far before that. Ian was most likely to come ashore south of Tampa near Sarasota, home to miles of sandy beaches, scores of resort hotels, a favorite with retirees and vacationers. Parts of central Florida could see more than two feet of rain, according to the National Hurricane Center. Generally going to start to make a turn more towards the north, northeast, and then approach, approach to Florida Peninsula, uh, making landfall somewhere within this red area. This is a hurricane warning area um, on Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon, and then crawling, and this is an important point, crawling slowly across central Florida, and the slow forward speed is going to be really important uh, for the, the hazards, and we're going to start talking through them. But the hazard I really want to help you understand here is um, the heavy rainfall because I'm not sure enough um, oxygen has been given to this particular threat, Um, especially since I've heard some um, narrative today that Tampa has dodged a bullet or Tampa has gotten lucky. That's just simply not true. A band of heavy rain, very heavy rain, looks like it's going to set up along into the north of where the center cuts across the state. This is 10 to 15 inches of rain that is predicted. If you're not familiar or contextually what that means, a typical afternoon thunderstorm here in Florida might produce an inch of rain. Uh, Floridians are used to this, so now magnify it 15 times to get a sense of just the magnitude of that type of rainfall. President Joe Biden, no friend of rival Florida Governor DeSantis, said FEMA would be sending tons of aid. Forecasts can change, but for now, the experts say this could be a very severe hurricane, life-threatening and devastating in its impact. So I want to be clear about two main messages. First, 
My administration is on alert and in action to help the people of Florida. I've approved Florida's request for emergency assistance immediately upon receiving it from the governor when they received it. And I directed my team to surge federal assistance there before the storm hit. FEMA has already deployed 700 personnel to Florida, and the governor has activated 5,000 state National Guard with another 2,000 guards coming from other states. FEMA is also proposing and pre-positioning 3.5 million liters of water, 3.7 million meals, and hundreds of generators. I just spoke this morning with the areas that are likely to be hit, the mayors of Tampa, St. Pete's, and Clearwater. All of them, all of them are in the storm's path. School districts across the state have been closed with schools designated as shelters. Commercial airlines canceled more than 2,000 flights and St. Petersburg and Tampa airports have been closed. Maybe most telling, Disney announced its theme and water parks were closed and the National Football League's Tampa Bay Buccaneers relocated to Miami where they'll practice this week ahead of their game against the Kansas City Chiefs on Sunday. Although Ian has heavily damaged parts of Cuba, that hasn't dampened celebrations after Cubans approved a sweeping new family law allowing same-sex couples to marry and adopt for the first time in the island nation's history and redefining rights for children and grandparents. The measure, containing more than 400 articles, was approved by 67 to 33 percent. Cuba's president, Miguel Diaz-Canel, said the reforms would have come sooner if not for opposition from the Catholic Church. The president added he voted for the measure. Four types of filiation are contemplated in the code, natural procreation, adoption, assisted reproduction techniques, and bonds resulting from social affectivity, a concept that recognizes and regulates multiparentality both in birth and at later stage. It also mandates the creation of institutions to manage sanctions for domestic violence against vulnerable persons and extends rights to sexual diversities. Among the main detractors of the initiative are the religious sectors, especially the Conference of Catholic Bishops of Cuba, which consider that the text introduces gender ideology in the legislation and deforms the natural basis of the family. The debate on equal marriage in Cuba was also on the table during the drafting of the 2019 Constitution. At the same time, its approval was not possible due to the intense rejection of the Christian churches, among other social sectors. The referendum was unusual for Cuba, where similar votes were perfunctory with 90% approval common. It's a sign churches have gained more power as the once militantly atheist state has become more tolerant of religion. And Mexico's Truth Commission, investigating the 2014 disappearance of 43 students from Ayotzinapa, reported Friday six of them were kept alive in a warehouse for days before they were turned over to a local army commander who ordered their execution. Last week, the Truth Commission called the disappearances a state crime. On Friday, hundreds took to the streets of Mexico City, demanding justice for the 43 and Mexico's other disappeared people. Three members of the military and a former federal attorney general were recently arrested in the case. The attorney general's office has published details of messages between drug gang members and the military that appear to show at least some of the students' bodies were taken to a local army base. 
And in the war, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov confirmed that the institutions of his country are ready to incorporate Zaporizhia, Kherson, Donetsk, and Lugansk. Officials reported 93% of the ballots cast in Zaporizhia, 87% in Kherson, 98% in Luhansk, and 99% in Donetsk voted to join Russia. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky told the UN Security Council by video from Kyiv that Russia's attempts to annex Ukrainian territory will mean there is nothing to talk about with this president of Russia. United States Ambassador to the United Nations Linda Thomas-Greenfield said the vote will only escalate the war. Russia's sham referenda, if accepted, will open a Pandora's box that we cannot close. We ask you to join us in reaffirming our commitment to the UN Charter and meeting this challenge head on. If Russia chooses to shield itself from accountability here in the Council, we will then look to the UN General Assembly to send an unmistakable message to Moscow. The world must stand together and defend the Charter of the United Nations. Have courage and support Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. A sentiment echoed by State Department spokesperson Ned Price. The so-called referenda Russia is holding right now in the sovereign Ukrainian regions of Kherson, Zaporizhia, Luhansk, and Donetsk are a total sham. The United States will never recognize seize Ukrainian territory as anything other than part of Ukraine. We stand by Ukraine's sovereignty. Russian President Vladimir Putin is expected to address Russia's parliament about the referendums on Friday, and annexation could be ratified by the Duma on October 4th. While most members of the Security Council agree the vote was a sham, India's ambassador, Rochira Zambosh, said the war's impact on world agriculture is already spreading devastation. India's approach to the Ukraine conflict will continue to be human-centric. On our part, we are providing both humanitarian assistance to Ukraine and economic support to some of our neighbors in the global south under economic distress, even as they stare at the escalating costs of food, of fuel, and of fertilizers, which has been a consequential fallout of the ongoing conflict. Mr. President, the need of the hour is to end the conflict in Ukraine and return to the negotiating table. Last week, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov laid the blame for the holdups in grain exports and desperately needed fertilizer firmly on the West. So far, the ships with the Ukrainian grain go somewhere, but not into the poorest countries on the one hand. On the other hand, the impediments by U.S. and uh, EU, the financial and logistical impediments against our grain and fertilizers have not been lifted. Furthermore, for several weeks, we have been saying that about 300,000 tons of fertilizer are being held up in European ports, and we have been proposing that they be forwarded free of charge to the country to the needy countries in Africa. But the European Union is not heeding this. In related news, President Putin said Russia could harvest a record 150 million tons of grain this year, a third more than during the same period last year. Putin echoed warnings Western sanctions imposed on Russia's grain and fertilizers pose a growing threat to global food security, adding that the West should be held accountable for the deteriorating situation. And Russia on Monday granted citizenship to former American intelligence contractor Edward Snowden, who fled prosecution after he revealed highly classified U.S. surveillance programs 
to capture communications and data from around the world. A decree signed Monday by Russian President Vladimir Putin listed Snowden as one of 75 foreign citizens listed as being granted Russian citizenship. After fleeing the United States in 2013, Snowden said he would seek citizenship in Russia but would not renounce his U.S. citizenship. State Department spokesperson Ned Price today said maybe Snowden would be conscripted into the Russian military. I'm not aware of any change in his American citizenship status. Uh, I'm not aware that anything has happened uh, yet when it comes to that. Um, Mr. Snowden is uh, apparently now a Russian citizen. Uh, and again, that uh, makes him subject uh, to any Russian decrees that may come down, including the one we heard about last week. While even men with dual citizenship are eligible for the call-up until age 65, Stone's lawyer says because he never served in the Russian military, Stone is exempt. Snowden, who has kept a low profile in Russia and occasionally criticized Russian government policies on social media, said in 2019 that he was willing to return to the U.S. if he's guaranteed a fair trial. And on Capitol Hill, the committee investigating the January 6th invasion of the United States Capitol by supporters of then-President Donald Trump postponed its hearing scheduled for Wednesday because of Hurricane Ian's projected landfall in Florida. Meanwhile, the seditious conspiracy trial of five members of the Oath Keepers, including the militant group's founder, Stuart Rhodes, began with jury selection today. Seditious conspiracy is a law passed after the Civil War to prosecute former Confederates. It's been used since against socialists, terrorists, and a few other anti-government groups. Professor Mark Graber is Regents Professor of Constitutional Law at the University of Maryland and one of the top constitutional law scholars in the country. He says while sedition is a criminal offense, a conviction would lay the groundwork for a civil action under the 14th Amendment that would prevent Donald Trump from ever holding office again. The seditious conspiracy is a conspiracy to challenge the authority of the government rather than to simply commit a crime. What's the difference between somebody who challenges the government by robbing a bank and challenges the government by organizing a protest and an invasion of the Capitol? The difference is that in one case, a person's motive is a private gain. The classic hallmark of insurrection is a challenge to the authority. That is, you're not invading the Capitol because you want to sell the furniture. You're invading the Capitol because you believe the authority of the government is illegitimate. A person robbing the bank doesn't reject private property. In fact, they want private property for themselves. They're very much hoping that their ill-gotten gains will be treated as private property. How has it been used? What I know is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Tell us about that. Section 3 says a person who after being a state or federal officer and taking an oath of allegiance to the United States, if they participate in a rebellion or insurrection, they are disqualified for future office holding. Used in the late 1860s, but then fell in destitute until very recently. Do you think that's why prosecutors are using this? Are they gunning for President, uh, former President Trump to make sure he doesn't run again? Is that it? I was an expert witness in the case of Coe Griffin. He was a county commissioner in Otero County, New Mexico. He was active in the January 6th insurrection, and about oh, two to three weeks ago, he was disqualified from holding office in New Mexico. You know, there's a Democratic Party thinking in terms of uh, preventing, or even parts of the Republican Party, keeping uh, the former president from running again in 2024. 
there are public interest groups considering filing suits preventing Donald Trump from being on the ballot, precisely because of his involvement in the events of January 6th. You know, these white supremacists, or it could be left-wing, FALN, I guess, was one of the groups as well, Puerto Rican independents, as well as terrorists. What's the implication? We need to distinguish the seditious conspiracy statute from Section 3. The sedition conspiracy statute or seditious conspiracy statute is a criminal law. You are punished criminally. Section 3 is merely a qualification or a disqualification. If you were disqualified from office, you suffer no punishment. You need not put it on a resume as a criminal conviction. It's two different things. One requires a criminal hearing, due process, and everything else. The other is a civil matter. Mm -hmm. So they're very different things. They apply to the same people. But even imagine you're convicted Mm -hmm. of seditious conspiracy. You still need a separate hearing to be disqualified from office. Do you think that this law, the law, the criminal aspect of this law is being properly applied in this case against the Oath Keepers, against people who, who say they felt they were defending the president, doing what the president told them to do? And the mere fact that you're doing what a president tells you to do, if a president tells you to blow up the Capitol and you do it, that is a criminal act challenging the authority of the United States government. In some sense, it doesn't matter that the president is the head of the treasonous army. What does that tell you about Donald Trump? What did he think he was getting into when he got elected president? The evidence does appear that Donald Trump doesn't really or didn't really understand what it meant to be president of the United States as opposed to the dictator of a small island country. A lot of people are scared that this is uh, there's a larger movement out there than Donald Trump of something that really people might a lot of people in this country might get behind. People are genuinely worried that you know close elections we contest them, but we contest them in court and in Congress. Donald Trump wanted to contest it in the street, and that is dangerous. Professor Mark Graber is Regents Professor of Constitutional Law at the University of Maryland. Federal investigators have alleged the Oath Keepers spent months planning the attack on the Capitol, with Rhodes spending $20,000 on weapons and equipment leading up to the attack. The group also planned to have armed quick reaction forces positioned to storm the Capitol. An expert on far-right groups for the Southern Poverty Law Center is Heidi Byrick, a regular contributor to this news program. She says the Oath Keepers are just one group of many that represents a deep strain of extreme conservative politics with a long history in the United States. Well, I think in this case, there are a few decent reasons why they chose this seditious conspiracy case for the Oath Keepers. And that has to do with the amount of planning that was actually done before January 6th by this group, including creating a quick reaction force staged at a hotel on the other side of the Potomac, stashing weapons. Saying that they were forming a militia to stop the government to trying to uh, defend the president of the United States and his allies. Well, an interesting thing happened in the whole militia movement, including with the Oath Keepers in the Donald Trump era, is which is they began to see Donald Trump, oddly, because he's the president of the United States, as a bulwark against an out-of-control federal government. In other words, he was a personal defender of their rights 
you know, gun rights, the kinds of things they care about. It's sort of similar in a way to the QAnon movement that viewed Donald Trump as a grand savior for all of them as well. So Trump began to be seen as separate from the federal government, the federal government remaining an enemy, but in many ways now an enemy of Trump as well. QAnon tighter than ever these days. He definitely is. He's playing their songs at his rallies. People are giving their salutes. He's worn a QAnon button and, and you know, posted things on True Social to QAnon. So he's definitely trying to rally these types of people around him. The military and police have uh, harbored quite a few QAnon supporters throughout the country. We're seeing more sort of symbols of the group popping up in places where we don't want it to be, like the military and the police. But unfortunately, when you have a situation where one in four uh, Republicans and one in five Americans believe in QAnon, there are literally millions of supporters, and we're going to find them in places like the military. The Oath Keepers tried to deny, but I think is coming out more strongly, is that they're united by sort of a white supremacy type of thing. During the Trump era, became much more racist against certain populations. Immigrants, for example, mirroring uh, Donald Trump's vicious attacks on on Latinos and immigrants, and also Muslims. In fact, they have been rapidly anti-Muslim before that. But we're also seeing other strains of white supremacy present themselves in the militia world in a way that didn't happen, say, 15 years ago. A strong, powerful streak of racist white supremacy that feeds into sort of an American fascism like he talked about in his book? white supremacy really reasserted itself um, in the public square, and Donald Trump basically gave license to people making those feelings uh, public in ways that they weren't um, before. And of course, we see tons of candidates in the Republican Party pushing the Great Replacement, which is just white supremacy, straight up. So this stuff is being mainstreamed and coming to the fore in ways that it hadn't been in a long time, you know, and we, of course, country have a long history of white supremacy. We legislated it, right? Until the 1960s, it was, you know, black people by law were denied many rights. So it's not surprising to see this come up, but Donald Trump really activated those sentiments and brought them to the fore. Why is it so difficult for the United States to get past, you know, the Civil War, which has been over for 150 years, much less the uh, other movements after that to try and keep black people down? Well, unfortunately, we're in a terrible situation in which major figures of the Republican Party don't feel a responsibility to denounce racism or QAnon conspiracists in their ranks. So there's nobody checking this from the right, which is a a bit of a disaster. You know, in earlier eras, like when Senator George Allen used a slur word for black people in 2006 in a campaign, he was tossed by the Republicans. We don't have that anymore. So we're down to sort of calling it out, you know, investigating it, like with the January uh, 6th Select Committee. Um, We don't have that. I wish we had that break point on the right to stop it. Heidi Byrick is an expert on far-right groups for the Southern Poverty Law Center. Later this year, another sedition trial is targeting the Proud Boys, a group that worked closely with the Oath Keepers and the Trump administration in the week leading up to the January 6th assault. Members of the group beat up anti-Trump protesters and ripped down and burned a Black Lives Matter flag from a black congregation Methodist church near the White House. 
and closer to home. Nearly 15,000 asylum seekers have arrived in New York in recent months, some aboard buses sent by Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Thousands have found shelter with family or moved along to other cities, but around 11,000 of them ended up in the city's homeless shelter system. The city is legally required to promptly provide shelter to those who seek it, but the city violated that obligation at least twice when it failed to timely house four families and 60 single men. In response, the Adams administration has opened 39 new emergency homeless shelters, largely in hotels, and a 1,000-bed tent for adults at Orchard Beach in the Bronx that'll be heated, but it won't fulfill all the requirements to comply with right-to-shelter laws. Mayor Adams addressed the tent plan today. We really don't sometimes understand that this is a humanitarian refugee crisis. And so we looked at 50 locations uh, and, and find, found the best location. We're going to open more sites. And this is not long term. You know, let's be clear. This is not something that's going to be done long term. This is not a shelter issue. This is a humanitarian refugee migrant crisis, humanitarian crisis. I believe you got six buses uh, yesterday uh, that we had to address. And so we want to make sure that we bring people into uh, a safe, clean environment as we process them uh, for a few days to figure out their needs and move them to the right location. What is happening is wrong. And I said it over and over again, we need help. And the national government has a responsibility and assisted in its national problems, but also those local governments like Governor Abbott has a responsibility to coordinate what we're doing. We should not attack another state because we are angry about what's happening in the country. No, we should coordinate. That's all we're saying. The Legal Aid Society and the Coalition for the Homeless, which have raised concerns about the city falling short of right-to-shelter rules, said they're waiting to hear more about how the 10 shelters will operate. Murad Awad of the New York Immigration Coalition says the tents are okay as long as they aren't permanent. We don't want what is supposed to be temporary to become permanent, so we don't want this temporary uh, respite center to end up becoming a de facto shelter for folks, putting folks so far away um, in Orchard Beach makes it limited in what services they're able to go and access themselves. So if they wanted to go to an organization to try to, to get some workforce support or try to get services support and enrolling in health insurance or enrolling in legal services, it's going to be incredibly difficult to do it from a location like Orchard Beach. Migrants seeking housing through the city will stay at Orchard Beach for 24 to 96 hours, allowing the city time to scramble to find shelter. And finally, Representative Lee Zeldin, who's running for governor as a Republican, is airing an attack portraying Governor Kathy Hochul, a Democrat, as soft on crime, complete with film of beatings and gunshots. Reminiscent of the infamous George Bush attack ad in the 1980s featuring a convict named Willie Horton. Crime is real. Then without warning, he turns violent. And You're looking at actual violent crimes caught on camera in Kathy Hochul's New York. Meanwhile, one of the subjects of Zeldin's attack ad is Saheed Vassell, a 34-year-old black man who was killed by NYPD officers in Crown Heights in April 2018. The security footage of Vassell, where he's seen pointing a metal pipe shaped like a gun at pedestrians, plays over the ominous narration. On November 8th, vote like your life depends on it. It just might. Vassell's father said, My son suffered from depression, and the image in that terrible ad breaks my heart.
Meanwhile, Governor Hochul announced security cameras will be installed in all of New York City's 6,355 subway cars and 472 subway stations. As far as the upcoming election, some polls measure Zeldin as within striking distance of Hochul, but surveys from Siena and Emerson Colleges show him about 15 points behind. But crime also ranks as a top concern in all surveys, and Zeldin emphasizes the issue more than any other. And that's the news for Tuesday, September 27, 2022. The news is produced, written, and anchored by myself, Paul DiRienzo. You can get the news at pauldirienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>